Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Nothing is Too Wonderful to be True. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 18, 2011, the fourth Sunday in Advent. It's a guest essay by novelist Ron Hansen. Ron's many books include Exiles from the year 2008, and then his most recent book from 2011 called A Wild Surge of Guilty Passion. Among his many honors are a Guggenheim Foundation grant, an award in literature from the American Academy and National Institute of Arts and Letters, two grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, and a three-year fellowship from the Lindenhurst Foundation. Ron Hansen is currently the Gerard Manley Hopkins Professor in the Arts and Humanities at Santa Clara University, where he earned an MA in Spirituality in 1995. Nothing is too wonderful to be true. A guest essay by novelist Ron Hansen. Each day at noon the bell of Holy Angels Catholic Church slowly gonged. And if we school children weren't at lunch or recess, we were instructed to stand and recite the Angelus. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, our teacher would say. Our memorized response was, and she conceived of the Holy Ghost, which was then followed by the prayer called the Hail Mary. At the next gong, the teacher recited, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. And we said, Be it done to me according to thy word. Another Hail Mary, another gong, and then the final petition. The word was made flesh, to which we added, and dwelt among us. Some fifty years later, I still recite the Angelus when I hear a church's noontime bell. And that recitation is a regular reminder of the crucial importance of the announcement and acceptance in our gospel passage from Luke for this week. Readers will recall that earlier, in Luke 1, 5-25, the evangelist presented a narrative of the childless couple Zechariah and Elizabeth. Like Sarah in the book of Genesis, Elizabeth is shamed in that culture for not having offspring. But she's old now and increasingly hopeless. But when Zechariah, a righteous priest, is offering incense in the holy place of the temple of Tabernacle, a messenger of the Lord named Gabriel greets him with the announcement that his prayer has been heard, and his wife will give birth to a son named John, who will become a great prophet like Elijah. Six months after Elizabeth becomes pregnant, the same messenger greets a not a wistful elderly father, but a surprised little girl. She was probably no more than 14, is not characterized as righteous in her religious observances, and is not visited in holy surroundings in the metropolis of Jerusalem, but in presumably humble circumstances in an insignificant northern village called Nazareth. But Gabriel tells Mary she has found favor with God, that we, she will conceive a son and name him Jesus, and that he will rule a dynasty, 
fulfilling all the ancient expectations for a Jewish Messiah. I find Mary's follow-up question rather confusing in human terms, since we have been told she has a fiancé named Joseph. She asked how she, a virgin, could possibly conceive a child. Wouldn't such a bride-to-be in those times presume that she could become pregnant after her marriage is consummated, and that the angel was foretelling that not-too-far-off event? But Mary seems to have intuited something more immediate, and she's right. For Gabriel is foretelling a miracle. In Luke's poetic and elusive phrasing, the message, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And in case she doubted his veracity, he offers his proof Elizabeth, Mary's kinswoman in Jerusalem, who was pregnant in her old age, quote, for nothing will be impossible for God, end quote. Though it isn't clear from their dialogue, a choice seems to be have been presented to the girl, and she accepts the responsibility of the child with perfect acquiescence, complimenting Gabriel, Behold, you will consume, conceive in your womb and bear a son, with her own response, Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. In the musical comedy, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, David Yazbek composed a lovely waltz of a ballad with the following lyrics. Look at the way the moon behaves. Look at the way she paints a silver ribbon on the waves. One thing I've learned and I'll share with you, nothing is too wonderful to be true. Since the first century after Luke's Gospel was written, skeptics have found the virginal conception too wonderful to be true, and it remains a source of extreme contention even now. Some note that miraculous circumstances surrounding the births of illustrious people were a convention of Hellenistic literature, with which, with which Luke was familiar. Others read the Gospel passage from Luke as merely metaphorical, that the infant Jesus was the product of natural sexual intercourse between Joseph and Mary, and that act of love was exquisitely and uniquely blessed by the Holy Spirit. But Matthew's Gospel, which provides the only other infancy narrative, opts for a miraculous interpretation similar to Luke's. This one, from the prospective husband's point of view, as Joseph is told in a dream, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And the apocryphal Proto-Evangelium of James, around the year 150 CE, contributes an account of how Mary herself was gifted to Joachim and Anna, just as John the Baptist was gifted to Zechariah and Elizabeth. In gratitude, Anna presented the child to the temple at the age of three, and though, Mary, and though Mary later married an elder named Joseph, the infancy gospel of James maintains her virginity was perpetual. In her book, Alone of All Her Sex, The Myth and the Cult of the Virgin Mary, 
Marina Warner notes the swift evolution of perspectives on the mother of Jesus as she shifts from being an unnamed person whom the evangelist Mark in the Pauline letters seem either indifferent to or unacquainted with, to being esteemed in Luke and John in the patristic tradition as the first disciple, the ideal Christian, the new Eve, the personification of Israel, and the iconic symbol of the church itself. We have no way of knowing now if Mary's elevation to the Excuse me. We have no way of knowing now if Mary's elevation to the highest degree of holiness is the consequence of fresh factual information unavailable to the earlier New Testament writers or the result of insight, inspiration, deepening piety, or a yearning for a feminine face of God. And it seems to me not to matter. The French philosopher Paul Ricoeur argued for what he called a second naivete. The first naivete occurs when we project our own constructs and fancies into a literary text, and he argued that we should be suspicious of that impulse. But Ricoeur secondly cautioned that we also have to forget theologizing and critiquing. Adopting an almost childish innocence in order to make ourselves available to a text's scenes and symbols so that they can have their intended effect on us. Each of the evangelists, after all, was writing for the heart, not the head. Each was trying in his gospel to communicate overwhelming, world-changing feelings of awe, reverence, gratitude, and continuing need for Christ who taught us the value of holy obedience and submission to love. We see the source of that willingness and vulnerability in the girl from Nazareth in the scene of Annunciation. Nothing is too wonderful to be true. A guest essay by novelist Ron Hansen. For books this week, I review Mark Richard, the title House of Prayer Number Two, A Writer's Journey Home, New York Doubleday, 2011, 207 pages. In the rural south of the early 1960s, Mark Richard was labeled a so-called special child. He spent many months as a young boy in the crippled children's hospital in Richmond, where surgeons drove nails into his deformed hips, put him in a full body cast, and said that by age 30 he would be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Neighbors thought he was mentally retarded. Teachers said that he was different and that he should be tested. Big boys bullied him. He feared his father and pitied his mother, both for good reasons. Somewhere along the way, though, Mark Richards says that he stopped believing in coincidences. One Easter, he saw an angel pass through his living room. His mother brought home grocery sacks of books from the library, which he devoured. And his black physical education teacher at school befriended him. He has fond memories of his grandfather, Big Bill, and his second grade teacher, Miss Caroon, 
who read a story he had written and told his mother, your boy could be a writer one day if he wanted. And then there's Pastor Ricks of the Holiness House of Prayer number two, a lifelong father figure and spiritual force for good. One day, Richard walked into a convenience store to buy beer and picked up a copy of the Atlantic Monthly, only to see that he was a finalist in their short story contest. A college professor had submitted his work without his knowledge. The rest, as they say, is history. His two collections of short stories, The Ice at the Bottom of the World, and a book called Charity, have earned numerous awards. He's written a novel called Fish Boy, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Harper's, GQ, The Paris Review, and Vogue. Today, Mark Richard teaches writing at USC. House of Prayer number two was Richard's first book of nonfiction. What makes it wonderfully strange is that he's written the entire memoir in the second and third person. The effect suggests the distance and detachment that Richard experienced toward his own body as a child and toward people who marginalized him as special. His story not only explains how he became a writer, he also tells how he found redemption in a place where only God knows how close you came to what could have been, and only his grace saved you from it. By the end of the story, Richard has his own call to ministry as the only white congregate at the House of Prayer number two, and he's slain in the spirit as Mother Ricks places her hand on his shoulder and testifies about the fulfillment of a dream she had long, long ago. Mark Richard, House of Prayer number two, A Writer's Journey Home. One of the best books I've read in the last five years, I might add. For movies this week, I review The Way from 2011. Tom is a soulless suburbanite from California who travels to France to recover the body of his son Daniel, who died while hiking the medieval pilgrimage Way of St. James, the El Camino Santiago. Before leaving, a priest asks Tom if he'd like to pray, to which he replies with a question, why? Observant hikers in France ask him, you're not a pilgrim, are you? Well, Tom becomes an unwitting pilgrim in the sense of spiritual, but not religious. He carries the cremated remains of Daniel along the way of St. James, spreading his ashes along the 500-mile trail. He attracts three other pilgrims, none of whom enjoy any character development throughout the movie. Joost, a loudmouth from Holland who's trying to lose weight, Sarah, a cynic from Canada who's trying to quit smoking, and Jack from Ireland who suffers writer's block. There are campfire discussions about who constitutes a real, authentic pilgrim, all of them superficial. And there's an omnipresent product placement for North Face. The director, Emilio Estevez, dedicates this film to his grandfather, 
and he casts his father, Martin Sheen, as the star, Tom. The only one missing, it seems, is brother Charlie Sheen. From 2011, the title of the movie is The Way. And finally, for the fourth Sunday in Advent, we've posted one of my favorite poems by the British poet U.A. Fanthorpe, who was born in 1929. It's called B.C. A.D. This was the moment when before turned into after, and the future's uninvented timekeepers presented arms. This was the moment when nothing happened. Only dull peace sprawled boringly over the earth. This was the moment when even energetic Romans could find nothing better to do than counting heads in remote provinces. And this was the moment when a few farm workers and three members of an obscure Persian sect walked haphazardly by starlight straight into the kingdom of heaven. U.A. Fanthorpe, B.C. A.D. It's available on our Journey with Jesus Advent Poetry page. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 18th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.